I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Billy Owens was a two-sport standout at the University of Arizona, but he chose baseball over football, becoming a third-round selection of the Baltimore Orioles in 1992. He played seven seasons in the minors before retiring, then spent five seasons as a hitting coach in the athletic system. But scouting proved to be Owens' true love, helping him make a huge impact on the Oakland organization over the past two decades. His scouting reports are legendary, and his eye for talent is among the best in the game. I had a chance to sit down with Owens at the A's spring facility in Mesa, Arizona, before camps shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed his playing and coaching career, his early scouting days, working for Billy Bean during the Moneyball years, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Oakland's assistant general manager and director of player personnel, Billy Owens. Billy, you grew up in San Jose. Uh, who was your favorite baseball team as a kid? Uh, it's funny, man. I'm working for the Oakland Athletics, but I definitely uh, split my time between the Giants and, and the A's. I mean, growing up, uh, you had Billy Ball, the original Billy Ball, Billy Martin, uh, that whole crew back in the day, Billy North, uh, Reggie Jackson. Uh, the Giants had uh, Frank Robinson, the great uh, Frank Robinson was a manager. Uh, Chili Davis broke in. Uh, Joe Morgan hit the big home run against the Dodgers back in the day when he came back. Uh, Jack Clark, love me some Jack the Ripper. Uh, Vita Blue played for both teams. Uh, definitely always had an affinity for baseball. And uh, growing up in the Bay Area, I like both squads. I think you played four sports in high school. Uh, is that right? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I was pretty pretty good athlete once upon a time. I mean, I was, um, you know, you know, top-rated quarterback out of California. Uh, end up going to Arizona. But a lot of that was to play two sports, strictly for football. I went to a school like um, – a USC or Miami type deal, but um, they allowed me to play both sports at U of A. And actually, um, baseball was always my love. Uh, I started off on a better footing, footing. I did better at baseball right away, so my football career kind of waned. But um, definitely, I mean, I come from an athletic family. My dad uh, was a running back for Fresno State. Uh, I believe he had nine. They have nine kids in their family. Uh, all nine graduated from college, and they all got a scholarship athletically to go to college. Um, Throughout the whole Fresno State, San Jose State, Cal Poly, and also my uncle Dennis, uh, he turned down Stanford football and he ended up being a doctor and went to Harvard. So, yeah, pretty successful family. Wow. The Orioles drafted you in the third round, 72nd overall, 1992. You played seven seasons with the Orioles and the Astros organizations. Never got to the big leagues. What prompted you to retire as a player? You know, it's a great story, actually. I mean, I was a guy that probably should have made it. Everybody has a story. I was uh, playing double A for the Houston Astros. Uh, Lance Berkman, a great player, was my roommate. Uh, We had a tremendous team that year. Freddie Garcia, uh, Julio Lugo, uh, Wade Miller, um, so on and so forth. And that's when uh, Randy Johnson got traded from um, Seattle to the Astros. And uh, Oakland was talking about a trade for Billy Taylor to the Astros. And during a rain delay, uh, Ron Hopkins, uh, special assignment for the Pirates, he came down. He knew me from college. Uh, We talked about some guys on our team, uh, Wade Miller, Freddie Garcia, uh, Ramon Castro, uh, Lance Berkman. And so we broke the guys down. And lo and behold, the Astros wanted me back. I kind of was Lance Berkman's caddy, A-ball, double-A. And the next year they wanted me to go back to triple-A and bat three forward Lance. And then um, Ron Hopkins called me out the blue. He said that, um, hey, we got a scouting opportunity open in Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, kind of a wink, wink. 
I thought about my career for a week or so, and I packed my bags, and I, and I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I started my odyssey as a baseball scout. You also had a career in coaching throughout that point. You coached in the A's minor league system uh, as a hitting coach. Was coaching ever a career that you considered long-term? You know, when I first started, I think it's gotten a lot better as far as you guys have different backgrounds. I was always going to be scouting-centric focused. I kind of knew, you know, playing double-A and triple-A. When I turned the TV on, the guys that coached and managed in the big leagues had played in the, in the big leagues. And so I felt that I could make more of an impact, you know, by you know pursuing the scouting side and the executive side of it. So that was a no-brainer. And it just so happens, uh, me being from the West Coast, uh, my first scouting opportunity was in Raleigh, North Carolina, so I had an area. But I also, in the summertime, I was able to um, coach the short season club. The first year, we were in Medford, Oregon. Uh, the next three years, we proceeded to go to Vancouver, British Columbia. And then I also mixed in uh, two years of rookie ball. And it also kind of gave me, it was a great format, not only to have my own area scout territory, but now when I did the um, short season coaching, not only were you responsible for your own team, building those relationships, trying to win ball games, but I was able to really scout the whole league, and I filled in the scouting reports for the for the rest of the league. And, and actually, I signed a kid named Freddie Bynum that went like, the, I think it was 60th overall second round, and I was able to deduct that this junior college kid from Pitt Community College was, um, he was a similar player to Joe Thurston, who I'd coached against, that, coached against that went the second round from uh, Sacramento City College and it put me on that scent a little earlier by having that coaching and scouting blend. Playing is one thing, scouting is a whole different animal. Did scouting come naturally for you? Yeah, I was kind of always, um, I played in the minor leagues from 92 to 98. It was pre, pre-internet pre era, so you would get your Baseball America and the stats were like a month late. I mean, I'm hitting two 240, but in, in Baseball America a month ago, I was hitting 300, but I, I knew I was hitting 240, you know what I mean? So anyways, and and that's also when the USA Today, uh, they'd had the Baseball Weekly, and, and the stuff would come out every Wednesday, a lot of stuff up to date. And so if you ask anybody to play with me, I knew what who everybody was hitting, whoever all the top pitchers were, even back in my minor league days, I, I would study that. It also was kind of was kind of a cool elixir moment at the end of my career. Those last two years of the Astros, I remember watching uh, Wade Miller one night. Wade Miller was a late round pick from Pennsylvania, but he threw 96, heavy sink, and I was like amazed. At this guy I knew he was a big league pitcher, and I remember talking to an opposing uh, a coach while still playing and kind of explaining what made him so good. And the fact that this guy couldn't really see eye to eye, and, and there's a ton of guys way and telling him he's smarter than I am, but that kind of let me know that day that I had a future at kind of uh, predicting what was going to happen. Do you think there's a specific skill set that makes for a better scout, or is it something you can learn over time to, to get better at the craft? Yeah, I think you can get better. I think anybody, you know, you, your background definitely is important, but it also it kind of gets your foot in the door. And then, like anything else, you, you got to be able to, you know, really put stuff down on paper, deduct what's happened before, uh, predict what's going to happen in the future. You got to be able to concisely uh, make a scouting report that's easy to read, sometimes entertaining, uh, sometimes blunt, and just right to the point. And so, there's a lot of different variables. So, you know, the one thing is, is kind of funny. It's like we know who the better players are. 
and out there we also you know know who the better executives and whatnot but is you can't lump the scout you can't just say scouting there's great scouts out there there's good scouts out there and there's guys that probably aren't the best evaluators so you have the full spectrum and so yeah i mean there should be definitely i mean scout should be in the hall of fame and there also should be um rec recognition who who the the great scouts are and you, know, you got the guys that uh, definitely drive the truck and you also have the guys that are exceptional and and the percentage the 10 percent out there that are exceptional uh, should be compensated as well what's the toughest part for an area scout is it evaluating a player's talent because they're not always playing against top level competition or trying to evaluate the makeup and personality uh, and that's another thing i mean you're dealing with human beings and so you still got to decide what's going to happen next and so hitting a baseball throwing a ball over the plate is the hardest thing to do in sports besides play quarterback in the nfl and so yeah you're getting the background you're getting the information you're trying to know the person you're trying to know the families i mean you're still you're getting every last scintilla of information and sometimes with all the information there sometimes you win sometimes you lose sometimes you get the player gets hurt but you want to make sure your process is uh, rock solid. How many games do you think you need to see an amateur player play before you have a true idea of the kind of player he is? I think that, you know, from an amateur perspective, every situation is different. I mean, if you go, um, you know, a kid out there that didn't go on the showcase circuit and he's playing, didn't have that much competition, it might be one thing. But seeing Anthony Rendon in college when he has more uh, – more home runs and strikeouts his third year at Rice, I don't think you need 10 games to, to name that tune. So I think every situation is different. I mean, if a kid came out where he wasn't seen, didn't have that much summer exposure, you might need a few more games to name that tune. But if he has, you know, that preponderance of evidence that you saw the kid in high school, you saw him in college, he has uh, the Cape Cod experience, another summer league, you're able to um, put things in perspective a lot easier. You were promoted to East Coast Scouting Coordinator in 2003, later moved up to the club's Director of Player Personnel with the A's. What were your primary responsibilities as Director of Player Personnel? Actually, you still hold that title today. Yeah, I'm Assistant GM, Director of Player Personnel. I mean, it's a lot of different things. I mean, it's funny where, you know, maybe as a player, uh, the Orioles are a tremendous organization. I'm proud that I got drafted by the Orioles, but they also, in the 90s, they were a heavily uh, free agent team well, you know, with uh, Rafael Palmero, uh, Cal Ripken, Brady Anderson, et cetera, where the A's, I mean, we were we were on the cusp of, you know, it was Billy Bean just, just got started as a general manager. Uh, Paul DePodesta was there. Uh, Grady Fuson was there. And, and J.P. Ricciardi was there. And so I was lucky enough where, and also was great with the A's, we were one of the few teams in baseball that all the area scouts came to the draft. And so that gave me a forum to kind of speak my piece in front of all the, uh, the key decision makers. And so later on, when those guys branched out and they got their own clubs, BGM or assistant GM, they wanted me and Billy Bean, you know, always was um, very straightforward and he wanted to keep me. So I, I was able to do that. And from, from a director, player, personnel, assistant GM perspective, handle everything. I mean, as far as you have a piece, you're able to recommend players free agent wise, a trade, uh, amateur, international, and domestic, um, able to see guys really from 
whether they're 14 years old in Dominican Republic, uh, whether they're um, 17 years old at Hamilton High School out here, or whether they're um, a well-polished college player at one of the major universities. So, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in being able to know every you know player. If Billy Bean, David Forrest asked me a question about organization, I can give them top to bottom, you know, who, who their better guys are to target, who the guys are to buy low, sell high, as far as where they are in the trajectory of how we have them evaluated, uh, when's a good time to just to, you know, you make moves. I mean, we're dealing with human beings, but as far as, uh, you know, guys get traded, guys sign free agent contracts, and I want to be able to, at, at the top of my head, be able to, to really say everything about them off the top of my head. Almost every executive's got a story uh, or two about near misses, got players that got away. What player do you think of that almost became an Oakland A but didn't? Oh, yeah, that's just funny. I mean, it's hard to – a lot of different stuff like that. I go back. It's funny. You learn stuff in baseball. I'll tell you a funny story. I remember there was a guy named Alan Horn out there. He was a pitcher in Mariana, Florida. Uh, he was a first-round pick by the Cleveland Indians in 2001. And so he was six foot six, threw 97 miles an hour, had a knee buckling curveball. And so the shortstop on that team was a, was a football player also. And he was the only guy that can catch Alan Horn. His name was Jeff Mathis. And so I remember, you know, I loved Alan Horn. I'm an area scout at the time, living in Atlanta. I drive down to Panhandle, watch him pitch. And I had no idea who this, you know, Mathis would catch him. And then one of my scout buddies told me like a week before the draft that, hey, he's going down to Mariana to work out the, um, the kids down there. I'm like, oh, you're going to work out Alan Horn? He said, no, I'm, I'm, my main focus is Jeff Mathis. And I kind of got, you know, I'm African-American, but if, if that day I kind of got white in the face. And I was like, man, I'm <laughs> this guy's really going to go. And I after I deducted everything, it made sense. And here we are 20 years later. Jeff Mathis is coaching in the big leagues. And also, I can kind of double down on that one. Uh, there was a guy named Russell Martin. I go to Chipola Junior College, and I, I liked the right fielder in that team at the time. And I'm t- talking about him. I'm working at the right fielder. So I have my own special workout for the right fielder. And this third baseman named Russell Martin was begging to get in my workout. And I found, at the end, I kind of let him in. And uh, I was still more focused on the right fielder. And Russell Martin's still out there. He's, he's catching 20 years later, too. So um, you have your hits, and you also have plenty of misses. What's your most memorable moment from a draft? Uh, I mean, a draft is always because, like you said, you, you win some, you lose some. You have so many highs and lows. So I couldn't give you a specific moment from an exhilaration standpoint. Uh, I mean, if we want to go to our, our team today, uh, Eric Kubota, our, our long-standing scouting director, tremendous, uh, either one, two, or three in the whole scouting industry as a scouting director. Well, he really, um, we picked 25. Uh, he really liked Matt Chapman. Um, he definitely was the high guy in the industry on Matt Chapman. And so, lo and, lo and behold, at a pre-draft workout, Matt Chapman came to our place he probably hit uh, Oakland Coliseums is uh, definitely a pitcher's ballpark, and he probably hit 25 or 30 home runs in the seats. 
that kind of cemented uh, what Eric Kubota had said about Matt Chapman. And so from then, we just kind of had sweaty palms, and he got to us at 25, and the rest is history. What's it like going through that first round? You know who you want. Like you said, those sweaty palms. Is it is it nervous energy? Is it anxiety? Waiting to see if that guy you want is going to drop to you. Well, I think uh, you, you you learn over time. I mean, one of our best drafts, too, is I think it was my – I believe it was my second year scouting. We picked 25 that year. We picked 25 and 26. And so we really, you know, concentrate on the board. We normally do it where we have the top 100 players in one area. Then we have the rest of the board by position. And so that year we picked 25 and 26. And so literally the way we line up the board, one through 24 were gone. And the 25th guy left on the board was Bobby Crosby. And the 26th guy left on the board was Jeremy Bonderman. So by doing the due diligence, by lining up the board totally right, we matched the industry as far as who went one through 24. And we were fortunate that we had two big leaguers sitting there for us at 25 and 26. And that's kind of more how the draft goes. Because if you're picking 30, odds are that you know, 25 of those guys before you, you had ahead of, ahead of those guys. And then at some point, you're going to have that decision where you got to say yes or no. And most teams at that point probably have a vote with their main decision makers of who they're going to take in that last, you know, anticipating moments uh, in the last, you know, probably five minutes or the last three or four guys before your selection. The A's had some really good teams during your early years in the front office. Guys like Jason Giambi, Miguel Tejada, Eric Chavez, Barry Zito, Mark Mulder, Tim Hudson, they were all breaking into the majors and establishing themselves. Did you believe that the A's were, were headed into some glory years right there? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been great to be here. It's my 22nd year. And so my first year, 99, you know, I'd played against a lot of those guys. Uh, me and Jason Giambi, same drafting. I went 72. He went about 50-something. So, you know, I kind of knew those guys breaking in. And so that was – I played against Matt Stairs in, in the minor leagues as well, tremendous hitter. And so it was great to see that young nucleus. In my first draft, it, it came down to – we picked nine that year. And it came down to Ben Sheets, who went ten. Uh, Barry Zito, who we selected. And another guy that was a high school player ended up being a first-round pick out of college. And so that, that was exhilarating in itself, first draft. We take Barry Zito. And then from there, my actually the year before, uh, Pat Burrow went to my high school, uh, Bellarmine Prep in San Jose, but the A's second selection was Mark Mulder. And my first day signing with the A's as a scout, we uh, signed the papers and we watched Mulder throw a bullpen. So now we got Mulder there, second pick overall. We, uh, Grady Fuson selects Barry Zito, ninth overall. Uh, before that, they had Eric Chavez, who was a first round pick. Uh, ben Greve was a first-round pick as well. They did a tremendous job in, internationally. Uh, Miguel Tejada was a shortstop, future MVP. Ramon Hernandez caught in the big leagues for 15 years. And so the pieces were in place. And so, yeah, it was it was great to see that. And, and one of my first uh, moves, actually, as an executive, was kind of great where I was coaching that short-season team. And Paul D. Podesta at the time called me. Uh, the A's were talking to the Royals on a deal, and he gave me a bunch of names. And I circles that I coached against him, a guy named Mark Ellis. And so Mark Ellis was playing the shortstop for the Spokane Indians. And I said, if you deal with the Royals at all, uh, Mark Ellis is a must get. And so lo and behold, 
Uh, we got Mark Ellis like a year later, and uh, my phone started to ring a little bit more. What? Uh, how tough was it to see guys like Giambi and Zahada and Zito leave as free agents, knowing how good the core of that team had been? I don't think. I think it's the business of baseball. I mean, that's the beauty of a CBA. I mean, CBA, both sides come to agreement on what the rules are. And so when it comes time to free agency, you either, you know, you have the first opportunity normally to extend them or or maybe that you trade those guys away and replenish last year like Arizona Diamondbacks did with Goldschmidt, a tremendous player, love Goldie, outstanding person. I live out here in the Valley, but they were able to get Carson Kelly, Luke Weaver, you know, to uh, Carson Kelly, their, their catcher right now, everyday catcher, uh, Luke Weaver. Uh, outstanding piece and actually Christian Walker who was an underrated guy over the years had the same OPS who they had him in AAA but last year in the major leagues he had the same OPS as Paul Goldschmidt and so they were able to replenish on the fly and it was great because Goldschmidt went to a playoff contending team he still got compensated which he had you know earned that compensation I was happy and so it worked out for both parties so it doesn't really I mean it's baseball nothing's forever I mean you know, I'm sitting here at 48 years old. I mean, I don't have the same physique I had when I was a player at 21 years old, man. So, and things change. I mean, so when a guy is getting to that point of free agency, he earned that right. And that's why, honestly, when a, when a player has a, a no-trade clause like Adam Jones a couple years ago and he decides to exercise it, I don't mind that at all, too, because that's in the agreement. So, you know, when we have a, a right to execute something, we're going to do it. And when a player has that right, uh, I feel he should do it as well. Big market teams obviously have an advantage in being able to extend their players and not worry about them leaving if they don't want them to. You've been with the A's for 22 years. That hasn't always been the case here and with small market teams. Does that get frustrating or is that just something you accept and just, you know, accept yeah, it as part of your part of the deal? Yeah, honestly, I embrace it. Like I said, nothing um, – if you look at what happens over the years, I mean, playing professional sports is a very finite period of your life. And you want every player that you draft to have as much success as possible, to make as much money as possible, but they're all not going to be 24 for the rest of their lives. And so you got to maximize uh, opportunity on your side. They got to maximize opportunity on their side. And you're, there's not that many fairy tales like Derek Jeter that plays for one team for 20 years or Mariana Rivera that plays for one team for 20 years. And even then, at some point, you have Didi Gregarious and the Yankees have, have a, had a dynamite bullpen since Mariano left. And so, I mean, if you go, go back to the Red Sox, uh, Theodore Samuel Williams, Ted Williams, he got replaced eventually by Yaz, and then uh, Jim Rice eventually replaced Yaz. I mean, so things go in cycles and nothing's forever. I mean, so uh, Roger Staubach played quarterback for 10 years and Danny White came in. I mean, and really the most, um, one of the best executive moments observing as a kid was if you go back to uh, the San Francisco 49ers, you know, Joe Montana, childhood hero of mine, number 16, played uh, 10 years in San Francisco, uh, tremendous Hall of Fame player, four Super Bowls, never threw an interception. But it's, at one point, uh, Bill Walsh, he traded for Steve Young. They battled each other for two years. Bill Walsh traded uh, Joe Montana to Kansas City. And uh, Steve Walsh had a Hall of Fame career that uh, piggybacked Joe Montana in San Francisco. So he had to make the hard decision he did and worked out for all parties. We'll have more from my interview with Billy Owens in a moment. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. 
If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. The early 2000s, the rest of us are watching what's going on out in Oakland from afar. We got our look inside the organization when Moneyball came out, the book. Uh, what was your first impression of the book? I was kind of, it was funny just because uh, Michael Lewis, a steam uh, writer, he wrote Blindside, Liars, Poker, uh, Hall of Fame writer in his own right, obviously. And, and so I think initially he came in and he was going to just write, uh, you know, Billy Bean's a, a magnificent person, uh, loyal, uh, couldn't imagine working. I mean, this guy's the best in the business to work for and a fascinating character. So he was able to parlay what initially was going to be a story into a book. And also, I think there's a lot of different variables. And that's right when the internet came out. And so people were able to put teams together. But I think that, you know, the most part would, I think it's, it's really simple. You want to pay for, you know, what, what really matters. I mean, going back to my football days, if you go to NFL Combine, I don't think it really makes that much sense to put everything on a guy throwing a 30 yard down and out. It's more about the instincts. It's more about who can really dissect the offense and go, go through the defense, who's got an accurate ball. And so in a lot of ways, it, it, it keeps on evolving, is emphasizing what's really important that matters for a player. And so I think every position's different. So that I mean, a lot of the numbers you're predicting, but like anything else, like, like anything, you're still giving yourself, you can get all the evidence that you want and then it's an educated guess. And then like I go back to one of my favorite lines is, when the preponderance of evidence is overwhelming, it's too late because everybody has the same information. They're fighting over the same thing. You got to do something else. We saw the Hollywood version of that 2002 season and the, the long winning streak. What was it like to be here during that streak and see that team come together the way it did? Yeah, it was a fascinating team. If you go back to it, I mean, if you go, you go Hudson, Mulder, Zito, you know, the top three. Then you go Corey Lytle, the, the late Corey Lytle, who was a bona fide, um, you know, plus level major league pitcher. And then if you go around the diamond for that team, like I said, it's Ramon Hernandez, international sign, 15-year uh, major league catcher. Eric Chavez uh, in a 40-year history of Oakland athlet Athletics. Uh, you got Josh Donaldson, who's a great third baseman. You got Matt Chapman, who we have now, uh, the great Sal Bando, and Eric Chavez probably slots, you know, one or two as far as who the best third baseman is there all around. Then you go slide over Miguel Tejada, one of the uh, most valuable player. Um, Mark Ellis was probably the most fundamentally sound second baseman that I've seen in the last 20 years. Uh, Jason Giambi, who also won an MVP. 
uh, Johnny Damon, who made over $100 million in his career as a center fielder, uh, Jermaine Dye, who made over $100 million as a right fielder, uh, left field, Jeremy Giambi, which he slid, but he didn't. <laughs> um, and then you go Jason Isringhausen, who I'd face, and he was one of the big three in the Mets system coming up. He was our closer, and so we had moved a starting pitcher into a closer's role. So, I mean, it was a dynamic team. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about you had studs all around. That 0-2 team was actually the year after Giambi okay, and Damon Giambi, left, right? So, yeah. So, then you had um, uh, Scott Hatterberg, who, right. who works for us now. Big star in the movie. <laughs> yeah, big star and an outstanding person. I mean, Scott Hatterberg can do anything. It wouldn't surprise me if he's uh, a major league general manager, a major league manager, uh, he, he can do whatever he wants. And so, yeah, he hit the big home run for that, for making the 20 games there. And so, yeah, he had a lot of different pieces. But, yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of what we've done here over the years. You know, not only have guys enhanced their careers, but also we've had a lot of opportunity where guys have had a chance to blossom their careers as well. You mentioned Jeremy Giambi and you wish he had slid. That was my first year covering the Yankees. It was one of the most remarkable things I'd ever seen that game, that series, that season. Uh, is that one of those moments, the flip play, that just stays with you? Yeah, it does. I mean, ironically, uh, I played against Derek Jeter all the way back in the South Atlantic League in 1993. I actually out hit him that year. but, you know, but <laughs> If you say so yourself. Yeah. But anyways, uh, uh, outstanding honor this year. I wish you would have got unanimous, but uh, deservingly so. I mean, Derek was, you know, since he was 18 years old, uh, tremendous person. Uh, his parents just really uh, raised him the right way. He's always been grounded. Over all those, you know, 20 years of su- success, he's always just been a real grounded individual. And honestly, if, if I was a betting man, I would bet the Marlins are going to, you know, under his stewardship, are going to be really good in the ensuing years. But, yeah, going back to that play, I mean, that, that, was, a, <laughs> that was a rough one, too. I mean, you're an area scout, and, and honestly, like the, like the Christmas bonus, not only do you want to win – but the Christmas bonus is heavily slanted back in those days on how far you go in the playoffs. And so when Derek came out of nowhere and flipped that ball to, to um, Jorge Posada, another guy who played against a lot in the minor leagues, uh, it shattered me. And then the fact that yeah, we didn't finish that series off after being up 2-0 uh, is definitely um, not one of my highlights of my career. <laughs> What uh, you mentioned, you were the director of player personnel for 12 years. Then you had the assistant general manager title added on. What did that mean to you when you when you got that promotion? Yeah, no, it's just been a, a, a wonderful a life in baseball. I mean, so it's like it's funny because you still talk to your family members, you know, at 48 years old. And sometimes it's almost like you've never um, had a real job. I mean, you, you definitely have your stress. I'm still going to watch three games a day, uh, professional and amateur. You're still going to type to the wee hours at night. and But it's something that you truly love to do, you have a passion for, you wake up thinking about. I mean, that's funny. The other night I ran into you know two random players. I want to call them out from a different team. And we happened to be sitting next to each other at dinner. And it was kind of a crowded place, so there's no way I can kind of just get around it. So after a while, I pretty much... I gave them their whole dichotomy of their career from high school through through the minor leagues, A-ball, triple-A, what they've done in the big leagues, 
and I, I pretty much dissected everything. And we sat there and, and had a two-hour conversation, a bunch of laughs. And so, and that's what you do on this side. You you want to take a lot of pride in knowing everything about everybody. So when it comes time to make a, a educated guess on on the next move, you're as informed as possible. Your responsibilities, as you mentioned, you provide input and recommendations on trades for agents, some amateur scouting evaluation. What's your favorite part of the job? I, I love it all, man. I mean, just having that smorgasbord of information every day. Um, you know, it's funny, I'm a big, I go to Starbucks probably every morning, and I sit there probably for an hour, and I'm in the corner, I'm studying like every every box score, major league and minor league that happened the night before, who's playing A ball, double A, triple A, wherever, who did what in the big leagues. I, I kind of test myself on the guy, was I too high, was I too low, was I right on him? And so if anybody asked me, you know, randomly during that day, I can tell you where, what the guy, where he's playing, what he's hitting, current time off the top of my head. And so if Billy Bean asked me a question, I mean, I learned that from the SEC tournament. I think it was like my third year scouting. I knew my players in my territory cold, man. There was nothing Billy could ask me about the guys playing. But it was, I mean, SEC, they got a lot of players out there. So there were some guys that would go in the first round that were like freshmen. And he's quizzing me about them, and I'm sitting there like I didn't know a couple answers. Some guys that, you know, two years later, they would have been high picks. And so I, I told myself that day that, you know, the next time I see this dude, that he'll never be able to ask me a question that I can't give him an answer. And 18 years later, I can honestly say he can't ask me a question I can't answer for him. That's great. Uh, early in 2014, Farhan Zaidi was in the A's front office. And you said at the time that he should be an emerging GM candidate for sure. You called him a hidden gem in your front office. What impressed you most about Farhan in those early days in Oakland? Uh, Farhan, uh, we, we, we grew up together. His first 10 years with the A's, and so we did a lot of stuff back and forth, information. Uh, we had really good, you know, interesting conversations over the years. And I always thought with Farhan, you know, he's got the cum laude and all the different fancy schools, but he's a really good person. He's outgoing, a tremendous personality. Uh, he really cared. And he, he's kind of a hip guy, too. I mean, he, he grew up in the Philippines. Canadian, grew up in the Philippines. And he can decipher an NBA roster. He can go 1 through 12 on almost all the NBA rosters. Uh, he, he's definitely he's a character of the game. So as smart as he is, he always had that outgoingness, and he was a character. And I thought that the depiction of him – was unfair and so it was great like the last couple years here that people started to see the true Farhan he went down to LA they went to the back-to-back -back World Series he got some more exposure and deservedly so he got the opportunity now in San Francisco which I fully believe he'll turn that ship around there and they've done it great I mean Brian Saban Hall of Fame uh, general manager they won three in ten years you can't you know He's been awesome, but now it's now it's Farhan's ship to, to, to run, to steer up there, and he'll definitely do an outstanding job. Um, and they're going through transition, but I firmly believe that um, he'll be an asset there and he'll get them back to um, the promised land. You mentioned Paul DiBodesta before. He obviously left baseball to go work in football for the Browns. Have you ever considered a jump to another sport? Uh, I definitely uh, keep tabs with Paul. I mean, we'll exchange texts back and forth. Uh, definitely with my football background, uh, you, you see like uh, Teddy Bruschi you see on television, one of my college teammates, and 
you know, actually uh, Sarah High School where Tom Brady went in, in the league I'm from. And I and I saw Tom Brady going back to the, the Orange Bowl game he played against um, Alabama, I believe. Sean Alexander, uh, Brady was throwing dimes, you know, the whole game. Uh, I, I knew back then, honestly, that he was a, a big-time quarterback. And so, yeah, I mean, from that lens, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me that uh, to have an opportunity like that, it's still evaluating the player, the person, the skill level. And so if somebody tapped me on their shoulder, right opportunity, yeah, I can do the football thing too. You interviewed for the Phillies GM job in 2015. What is the interview process like for a GM job? Oh, that was a great opportunity. Andy, Andy McPhail, another Hall of Fame executive. Uh, it was cool. I mean, just to, to kind of go down like we're talking today and, and just give him my best shot as far as what my vision is for an organization, top to bottom, from a player standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, from a managing standpoint, uh, from a marketing standpoint, um, what the plan is going forward, how long it's going to take, how you're going to implement certain things. Uh, it, it definitely was exhilarating. It was a thrill. Uh, they're in great hands with Matt Clintac, and so uh, Andy made the, the right decision at that time. But as far as, yeah, it, it was a thrill. I mean, if you go back to uh, Logan White, he's a um, I think assistant GM for the San Diego Padres. And in L.A., he drafted Kershaw. Uh, another uh, uh, Cody Bellinger. I played with Clay Bellinger in AAA. Um, you go down, Matt Kemp. So Logan White's got rookie of the years. He has MVPs. He has Cy Youngs. And Logan White signed me as a player. And he thought, I mean, my idol growing up was Eddie Murray, and I thought I was going to be that guy. But after we did the negotiation, Logan – you know, fully thought I was going to be a big league player, which I did too. But he also, for some reason, he was impressed by the negotiation, and he said that I'll be a, a, eventually a major league general manager one day, and, and he meant it. So he always reminds me that I haven't quite made it there. Uh, who knows in the next, you know, 20 years if I had that opportunity. But you know, Logan Logan White, one of the greatest evaluators out there. He predicted that when I signed the contract in 1992. I think Logan's actually the one who ended up signing Russell Martin, too. Yeah, he did. So, yeah, <laughs> Russell Martin, Matt Kemp, and, uh, yeah, he's got a long line. So, yeah, Logan, the one guy he missed on as a player is sitting right here talking to you. <laughs> when Billy won the MLB Executive of the Year Award a couple years ago, he gave you and David Forrest a particular shout-outs during his acceptance speech talking about the collaborative effort. The three of you are among groups worked together for a very long time. What are the biggest benefits of having that kind of consistency and stability in a front office? Yeah, the continuity is great. I mean, Billy Bean, I mean, there's no words to describe. And it's funny, I mean, he's definitely been ahead of the game technology, bestly uh, been part of the game as far as, you know, having a great team, you know, tearing it down, letting guys have opportunity elsewhere and building it back up. But his loyalty as far as you look at the coaching staff, you look at the scouts, you look at the executives, I mean, the guys that he believes in, he definitely stands by. And even guys like Grady Fuson who've left, you know, they went elsewhere to assistant GM jobs. You know, Billy's brought those guys back as well. Keith Lippman, um, he's been with the organization for 50 years as a player. And so Billy's awesome to work for. And, you know, passing the baton there to David Force. David Force is incredible. Uh, another guy with a tremendous vision, uh, outstanding leadership skills. And so, you know, I've been blessed to, to work for those two guys. Also, Dan Feinstein's another uh, co-assistant GM. And so, yeah, we, it's been a great opportunity. Like I said, I, I've been blessed for the fact that 
as a scout executive, I definitely signed with the right team. Uh, so I've, I've been, it's been a great experience. As we mentioned earlier, you played baseball and football at Arizona. Did that give you any deeper insight into Kyler Murray's situation last year? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it was kind of fun. The first time I saw Kyler Murray uh, was at the Under Armour game in Chicago, and it kind of, you know, reverberated to me that, you know, I was just thinking about it. I put two and two together, and I remember 86 Kevin Murray, who was a quarterback, you know, at Texas A&M, and lo and behold, he was Kyler's father. And also Calvin Murray, uh, like I said, I went 72 in the 1992 draft. Calvin Murray, I believe, went – he either went five or – he went – Jeter went six. Calvin, believe, went four or five. And so I've known Calvin since I was 18 years old too. And so putting two together, Calvin is Kyler's uncle, and Kevin Murray, a guy that I watched as a kid a lot, was Kyler's father. And so seeing that, we were able to circle his name then. And then he kind of went away. He went to Texas A&M. He father, followed his father. And then he um, ended up at OU, and he sat out a year – and so, you know, lo and behold, you know, it was, it was great to see him in, in Under Armour game. But uh, the Sooners that year had a kid named Steel Walker who got traded to the Rangers, but he was like a, a sandwich pick or second-round pick to the White Sox that same year. And going to see Steel Walker, I, he was just mesmerized by watching Kyler Murray in center field. So it was almost like the visual you saw of him at the Under Armour game, getting three hits and stealing three bases. Now he had a year off of football. He was able to concentrate on baseball a year. It came to fruition, and, I mean, he was I mean, exhilarating. This guy, could, he was a five-tool player without a doubt. And then, you know, lo and behold, you go through the process, and, you know, we took him nine overall, but Kyler was going to go in the first round. Whether he went nine or whether he went somewhere between nine and 30, he was going in the first round of the, of the baseball draft. And so we went high ceiling, we took the best guy on the board, uh, we take him. Uh, definitely, we all knew that he was still had the unfinished business doing the gridiron. And to Kyler's credit, I mean, I think he's the only guy that knew. If you'd asked Kyler Murray when he went back to Texas after taking 50 snaps in his college career before that, if he was going to be one of the top five guys to go to New York City on that podium and be the Heisman Trophy, he'd have looked you straight in the eye and told you he was going to be. So it was no surprise to him. Sure or not, not only was he a finalist, he ended up winning the Heisman Trophy, and then he ended up being the first pick of the football draft. And so, I mean, you had a chance to be the CEO of a whole city as a starting quarterback, or the way baseball is, he went to A-ball for us. And so, as much as I want Kyler, you know, to be in the green and gold, I mean, it'd be tough to turn down that opportunity. So, at that point, you had had them, the, you and Billy. You guys had all expressed optimism that he might still play baseball. At what point did you was it when when that season was going on in Oklahoma and he was a Heisman favorite and then he wins the Heisman? At that point, you realize that that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I still thought we, you know, till he announced that it wasn't going to happen, we still put our best foot forward because we still presented a tremendous opportunity. I mean, less contact, obviously, and, and it would have been lucrative as well. But I mean, as far as Knowing it was going to be competition for our services, I remember sitting down on a Saturday afternoon, and it was like they were playing Texas Tech, and he just was – he probably threw for three bills. He ran for 100, saw how accurate the passes were, how on time – the mastery of the offense. And I said from um, – just from a baseball perspective, 
I knew that we had a problem as far as guaranteeing that he was going to come play for us. How closely did you follow his rookie year in the NFL? I followed. I mean, I live in Phoenix, and he plays for the the Arizona Cardinals. Um, you know, one thing, you know, between all the everything about it, Kyler's a tremendous person, uh, outstanding kid. I mean, I wish he was playing for us, but I, I definitely root for Kyler Murray and his family. I mean, they're, they're just amazing, tremendous people. I, I definitely want those guys uh, to have all the success going forward. Maybe at some point we can kind of lure them back to the baseball field. But on, on that gridiron, uh, when I turn that TV on on, on Sunday afternoon, I, I root hard for Kyler Murray. Scott Hatterberg once described you as being like Rain Man, pointing to your memory. Uh, you've put that on display in the last 30, 40 minutes here. Have you always been a detail-oriented person where you remember everything you've seen? I think I remember everything I've seen from things I like to do. And so baseball is that passion. Is that something that, you know, going back to, you know, as a kid, you go back to the Cincinnati Reds, 76, you know, Johnny Bench behind the plate, uh, Pete Rose at third base, Concepcion at short, Morgan at second, uh, Tony Perez at first, uh, Cedeno center, uh, Foster left, Griffey right. I mean, that was your squad, man, Big Red Machine. So just going back to that squad right there, which is kind of crazy, too, if you think about in 1976 when they won the World Series back-to-back in 75, how diverse that team was. I mean, they had the second-round catcher from Bing, Oklahoma. Uh, they had uh, Pete Rose, overachiever from Cincinnati, uh, Davey Concepcion from Venezuela, Joe Morgan, African-American from Oakland, Tony Perez, Cuban that grew up in Puerto Rico, uh, Cesar Geronimo, center field from Dominican Republic, uh, Ken Griffey from Pennsylvania, African-American, George Foster from the East Coast, from L.A. actually, uh, African-American as well. So just the blend of that team uh, going forward, I think that team was well ahead of his time. And it's kind of ironic, too, you think back to, you know, growing the West Coast, they were challenged by the Dodgers, and that was the NL West back in the day. So Cincinnati, Ohio was in the NL West versus the Dodgers. And the Dodgers, I remember going Dusty Baker, who should be in the Hall of Fame, one or two. Dusty Baker and Joe Torre are the only two guys in Major League Baseball history with 1,800 hits as a player and over 1,800 hits as a manager. Only two guys in history, Joe Torre, who's in the Hall of Fame, and Dusty Baker, who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And then they had a great infield for eight years together. Think back to the Penguin, Ron Say, uh, Billy Russell, uh, Davey Lopes, Steve Garvey, then Jaeger behind the plate, Reggie Smith in right field, uh, Monday in center. So and then uh, Dusty was in left. So, yeah, just thinking back to those great teams that, that growing up, you know, going to the Red Sox with Yaz and Jim Rice and the Rooster, um, Rick Burleson at shortstop, and I think Jerry Remy still announces those games, Butch Hodson at third base. Uh, so, yeah, baseball's always kind of been ingrained uh, in my fabric. Your scouting reports are legendary in the business. Farhan once said you can make a 37th rounder sound like the most interesting player in the entire world. Uh, Billy compared your reports to what Liberace's reports would look like. A lot of scouts look at these reports as a necessary task part of the job. Do you enjoy writing them? I can't wait. So, so not only, you know, you, you can't wait to be at the ballpark – which you're outside, you're in your element, you're, you're seeing friends uh, from opposing teams, your team, uh, you're getting a chance to see the stars of tomorrow on the diamond. Um, 
get to interact with them, you know, kind of decide what they're going to be, where they're going to go in the draft, or are you going to trade for them, or what kind of big leaguer, minor leaguer they are. But then, yeah, that time when you go back to the hotel and you're able to write their short story, read their bio, and put, you know, put that synopsis down on paper and really give them a good description. Uh, I think that, I mean, it's 50-50 for me. I, 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 I enjoy writing the report as much as I enjoy going to the ball game, 100%. You do an incredible amount of travel, scouting amateurs, pros, international players. All three of those areas require different types of evaluations. Which is your favorite, amateur, pro, or international? Yeah, it's and it's funny with that because it's all, you know, seeing – Going to the Dominican Prospect League uh, in Latin America, run by Ulysses Cabrera, who's out, outstanding. Uh, Brian Mejia, they're, they're tremendous. But going down there, you know, watching, you know, maybe Luis Barrera for us having a good big league camp, seeing him in that environment uh, at 15 years old and kind of deducting and, and knowing over time, over the years, seeing Yoannis Cespedes before he signed him, you know, going around the world, watching the Cuban team, or seeing uh, Josh Hamilton, who was in my territory uh, my first year as an amateur scout uh, in Athens Drive High School in Raleigh, North Carolina, Uh, seeing Anthony Rendon in in high school and college, Uh, or seeing Freddie Bynum at the time at Pitt Community College in in Greensville, North Carolina. I think there's all a different you got to have a different lens when you're seeing these guys. And I'm also, you know, try to reinforce the guys. you got to be able to have your amateur lens on, but then also be able to duct what your pro lens would say six months or a year later. And it's, it's delicate because you might have all that evidence amateur, but when you put the pro lens on a year later, it ain't the same. You mentioned before how rare it is for a player like Derek Jeter to stay with the same team for 20 years it's become pretty rare to see an executive stay with the same franchise for 20 years as well uh you've been with the a's now 22 years is there a sense of pride of being able to stay in one place and build something yeah it's awesome i mean obviously you aspire to run your own team someday but as far as you know working for billy bean david force john fisher uh really for the home team where i grew up in san jose california uh, it's been awesome. I mean, and we're also, it's still a testament that Billy Bean, how loyal he is in cultivating that culture of believing and staying with people that he likes, respects, that produce for him. And so, yes, it's been awesome to be here going on my 22nd year, but that has much to do with uh, Billy Bean uh, being in my corner also is my performance. So I've been fortunate to work for Billy Bean. You've been quoted as saying that you're hungry and thirsty for the next challenge out there, whatever that may be. Is being a GM a goal for you? Yeah, I mean, you definitely aspire um, to run your own organization. I'm a history guy. I know that uh, whoever the next African-American general manager would be the be the sixth in Major League history. And so it, it's still kind of um, – it's – it's kind of sad, I mean, because you want, you know, the best environment. So you got to have diversity, and, and I'm for all diversity. I mean, whether in any aspect, I mean, women, people of any race, everybody deserves the same opportunity. And so we, you know, we got to cross that barrier still. And so if that gets to that point, you know, I've been on these lists, and I'm definitely uh, looking forward 
and ready for that challenge and, you know, and getting that opportunity to be huge. So I'm definitely uh, excited, happy here, uh, but also that, that next opportunity. Yeah. At some point, I mean, it's kind of since Logan White kind of put that moniker on me when he, when he drafted me and people talking to me over the years and last, you know, 30 plus years in, in baseball, everybody's always kind of said that I was going to be able to be that guy. And, and I honestly, I probably have said that the least. It's always come from other places. And so now I'm just kind of listening to the masses. The A's have had some really good teams during your two-plus decades with the club, but they've never won at all. What would it mean to you and your colleagues in the front office for the A's to win their first World Series in more than three decades? Yeah, it'd be – I mean, I couldn't even tell you how, how thrilling that would be for one to look on the face of Billy Bean, David Forrest, John Fisher, to clear those hurdles – We've been to the playoffs 10 times in 21 years. We've always had, you know, we go to five games in a division series. We've lost um, some wild of uh, wild card games. Yeah, I mean, it's we've been through a lot of ups and downs, and it's crazy where it's always a different team. So that team itself hasn't really experienced that. But being here for the last 22 years and being part of the postseason for 10 years and you've lived through every one of those, it's kind of um, – it's a tough deal. I remember, you know, one series one, Marco Scudero ended up being a World Series hero uh, for the Giants. And one of my favorite memories working for the Oakland A's, who was another guy we claimed off waivers, small trade, who ended up having a great career uh, with us, Boston, and eventually with the Giants. But I'll never forget when he got uh, – we advanced to the ALCS that year against the Twins, and uh, the stands were going Marco, Scudero, you know, kind of like the chorus, like Marco Polo, and he got the three-run double at the time to propel us to the next round. Uh, to get that for two more rounds and to be, you know, in the epitome in the World Series, uh, Mike Rizzo, uh, one of my uh, best friends uh, in the game, he's the general manager, obviously, uh, president of baseball operations and general manager for the Washington Nationals. And so obviously I want us to win it, but for, for Mike Rizzo to host that to hoist that trophy and, and for his father who passed away recently to be able to say he was a world champion as well, that kind of gave, gave gave me a taste of what it would be like to hold that trophy ourselves. But yeah, it would be it'd be a surreal feeling for Billy Bean, John Fisher, David Forrest, uh, David Cavill and the rest of the front office to, to hold that trophy would be special. Billy, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Mark, thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure. Many thanks to Billy Owens for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Diamondbacks Senior Vice President and Assistant General Manager, Amiel Sade. We'll discuss his start with the Red Sox, what he learned from Theo Epstein, his move to Arizona, the trades of Paul Goldschmidt and Zach Greinke, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe, everybody.